I'm so glad that you are here this morning. An author named William O. Paulson wrote in his book, Ways of Prayer, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. There will, need, there will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives. But there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. Today we gather to worship our God who is not only present in this place, but who is present in our daily routines, in our daily life. Yes, we meet God here as we intentionally pause and focus on God in worship, but God also meets us in our day-to-day lives, in and among the routines of regular living through the week. So as we center our minds here on Christ, realize that God meets us here, but also recognize that God meets us every single day in every single event of our lives outside of this place as well. Let's take a moment and be in prayer together. Holy God, we have gathered in this place to worship you. We come from different points in our lives, each with our unique past and each with our unique present. Each of us comes with it from a different starting point, yet we all find ourselves here gathered together in this place. Open our minds and our hearts to you so that no matter where we have come from, we would find you here. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, that we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Through the month of July, we're working through a series that's titled Boiling Point, and through the month, we're looking at five different actions or reactions that people had that miffed our Messiah, five things that infuriated our Savior, and we started this series by looking at Jesus' response to hypocrisy from those who call themselves followers of God. And we looked at his anger towards that, and then it led us into a conversation on transparent faith, meaning the outside presentation of your being matching up with the inward disposition of your belief in who you are in Christ. Then last week, we took some time to look at fruitfulness, and what does it mean to be fruitful, and what kinds of fruit can our life produce, good fruit, bad fruit, or no fruit? Um, And we also realized that between God, the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit, that God is willing and ready to invest in us to see fruit grow in our lives again, Um, that intentional year of nurturing. Today we're going to look at another topic that made Jesus mad, and that topic is, of course, greed. Greed presents itself in so many different ways in our lives and in our culture. Um, And so we're going to talk about greed and take an honest look at our lives and lay that right alongside some of Jesus' teachings. And when we do, we'll find out that even though greed infects our lives, most of our lives, we can prevent that spread of the the greed infection, if you will. I have a unique personality trait, something that makes me uniquely me, which means that I have a unique personality trait. It's, one of the, it's a personality trait that's shared with um, my immediate family as well, which means that my unique personality trait could be <clears throat> hereditary um, or it could be nurture-related, um, but it really, it really doesn't matter for our conversation today. <clears throat> my personal unique trait um, is that I sometimes, sometimes obsess about things. And, and also at other times, I can become very compulsive about things. 
Um, in my life experience, I realized that my actions are a part of the way that my brain is wired. But through many years of living with these traits, I found that there are some things that I am hardwired to obsess and be compulsive about, and there are other things that I have learned to be obsessive or compulsive about. For example, um, I lick my coffee cup each time before I drink it. That's true, I do. It's, it's, it's hardwired into my brain. I've tried to deal with that, but, but um, it, it's never, never happened. I've never been able to deal with that, and now every time I have my coffee cup up here, you all are going to be looking for me to lick my coffee cup, which is why I brought my water this morning. But for, um, there are some things that I've obsessed about that are not as hardwired into my brain. Um, for instance, um, the purchasing of Star Trek books. Um, I, I don't need books. I have hundreds and hundreds of science fantasy and science fiction novels, um, but I want them. I desire them. I, I, I buy the, a lot of them. Um, it's taken some work and some talk therapy, but I have come to realize that there are some things that I obsess about and I'm compulsively drawn to that are actually more related to a desire of my heart. Um, they're not a genuine need in my life. They are a want, a very strong want, mind you, but a want still. Um, sometimes it takes the kind or occasional forceful words of my wife um, to ask me if I really want it or if I need it. She asks, are you being compulsive about this? Do you really need it, Tim? I wonder, have you ever struggled with discerning between a want and a need in your life? Sometimes it's hard for me to look objectively at the desires of my heart. Sometimes I get so wrapped up in the potential satisfaction that the new thing um, could bring that I, begin, I become fixated on it. I become blinded to the rest of the world um, and everything else that's going on around me because I just have to have it. I begin to justify the expense even. I'll say things like, well, I got a great deal on eBay. The auction went for barely nothing, just shipping. Um, or it's double coupon days. One of my wife's eyes, uh, she sees the, she's thinking about the clothes that our kids' knees as their pants are beginning to look more like high waters and their shoes are getting a little too tight. And I'm standing there talking about my heart's desire to buy one more novel, one more book to put on the bookshelf with a stack of hundreds of books that I have yet to read. Have you ever struggled to discern between a genuine need in your life and a genuine calling versus an unhealthy desire of your heart. Well, my obsession with um, science fiction novels is somewhat comical. The reality that I've come to face, to face with is that I have a heart issue, and that heart issue is greed. I am a greedy person at times in my life. Sometimes I put the desires in my life before the needs of others, before the responsibilities that I have for my family, before my calling from God even at times. Sometimes I struggle to differentiate between a genuine need in my life and a misguided desire of my heart. And I wonder, am I alone in this? I don't think that I am. Mahatma Gandhi once said, There is sufficiency in the world for all of man's need, but not for man's greed. Andy Stanley said it this way, where he said, Greed is not a financial issue, it's a heart issue. So, 
Um, inspired by Jeff Foxworthy's um, You Might Be a Redneck bit, I've compiled a listing of you might be greedy if statements. So without further ado, if you take all the cookies in the house and refuse to share, you might be greedy. If you take the, the credit for the hard work of others and never give credit to your team, you might be greedy. If you take your neighbor's Christmas decorations from their yard and put them up in your own, you might be greedy. If you take the pens and post-it notes from your office home with you, you might be greedy. A little too close to home. If you refuse to pay your taxes in order to keep the money for yourself, you might be greedy. If you blame everyone and everything for the outcomes of your life, you might be greedy. If enough is never enough, you might be greedy. If all-you-can-eat buffet is synonymous with best dinner ever, you might be greedy. If your pockets are always empty and you only give out of guilt, you might be greedy. If you let other people's possessions determine your purchase choices, you might be greedy. If you believe your success in life is because, you and, because of you and you alone, you might be greedy. If you regularly run out of hangers in your clothes closet, you might be greedy. If you can't find any more room in your food pantry for your groceries, you might be greedy. I wonder, as you've listened to this list, have you, like me, seen yourself in any of these statements? While some of these statements are comical, the lack of laughter is not due to a poor joke or a weak joke, even though I know, you know that I'm prone to weak jokes. The reality is that it is nearly impossible to laugh, to laugh at an, the unsettling truth of our hearts. And that is what greed is. Greed is a heart issue that we all face. On December 11th, 2010, Psychology Today published an article by Michael W. Austin, PhD, titled The Grip of Greed, with the subtitle, Greed is Neither Good Nor Good for Us. And in this article, Dr. Austin states, a deeper understanding of greed can help us to see that it is not only material goods that we desire money for, but also the security and independence that wealth can bring. While greed is an inner condition, it can be expressed in many of the choices that the greedy person makes. Over the last few weeks, we focused on the, focused on the actions and reactions in the first century that took Jesus to his boiling point. The, the apparent action or reaction that we're talking about today, um, the thing that angered Jesus is obviously greed, as you know. And this may not surprise you, um, and it may sound as common sense, but, but greed is not a new condition to humankind. It's been a while, around for a while. Repeatedly, Jesus got angry at the people that demonstrated greed. He, he, the example that Je, of Jesus' anger that many of us turn to, that many of us think about when we think about greed in the Bible, is an event that took place in the temple just after Jesus um, entered Jerusalem during Holy Week for the Passover festival. And so from Mark chapter 11, we find this account. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of this, those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of the Lord for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning on how to kill him. 
but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed by his teachings. So here we have Jesus um, who's walked into the temple with the intention to pray. But when he finds himself in the outer courtyard of the temple, there were money changers and sales booths everywhere. Now, a few months ago, we talked about that, that layout of the temple and that open courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, where, where these sales booths and things would have been. And we talked about the doors and the stairs and the levels of the temple. And we talked about where, where people went and where people prayed and, and, um, and where the sacrifices took place. But what we didn't talk about is where the people got the animals for the sacrifices. In the biblical story, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. As Jews traveled to Jerusalem, they would use the currency of their own culture and homeland to pay for their travels. So they would have their common currency um, that would, they would use to purchase food, to purchase lodging, and all of the things that they would need as they traveled to Jerusalem. And a common currency, a common coinage of the time was, of course, the Roman currency. However, the only currency that was accepted, the only money that was accepted in the temple were things like the, shem, the shekel, the, the temple currency. The reason for this is that the shekel did not have on its face the image of any pagan gods or any uh, pagan rulers. And so it was acceptable in the temple for purchasing things, the purchase of sacrificial animals, um, because it didn't have any of those pagan figures on it. So it was acceptable by the law in the Torah. So the money changers played a crucial role in the temple as people were traveling to the temple with their local currencies. They provided the exchange of those currencies in, which bared the image of, of pagan gods and rulers with the appropriate temple currency. Think of it this way. Um, what if we as a church only accepted redeemer bucks? Okay? So you would, you would come to church, and in, in the lobby, only in the lobby, you would exchange your U.S. dollars for, for Redeemer bucks. But then you were required to buy your worship folder, and if we were having communion, the, the, the elements in communion here using Redeemer bucks. But we would only take Redeemer bucks. And to top it all off, if you didn't buy those things, you were not allowed to worship and God would no longer look upon you with any favor and you couldn't be forgiven for any sins and all of that. Oh, and by the way, we're the only church in the world. So it's here or nowhere. It seems absurd to us today in our culture, but this is the reality of what the temple meant to the people in, in Jerusalem at the time. This was the place where you went. This is where you go. You had to go to the temple to make your sacrifice. You had to have an animal to sacrifice, so you had to purchase the animal, and the place that you would do that was near the temple or in the temple. And the only currency that was accepted was the temple currency. So what Jesus saw when he walked into the temple courtyards um, were money changers and people selling animals for sacrifice. The money changers were changing local currency into temple currency. There was nothing wrong with this. There was nothing wrong with this. It was a part of the process. It was a necessity. However, what the money changers were doing was offering an unbalanced exchange rate. In this way, the money changers were able to make excessive profits um, on the money exchange. Also in the courtyard, there were those businesses whose business was selling animals for sacrifice. And as we know from the Old Testament, there were very strict regulations on the kinds of animals that would be sacrificed. 
But instead of offering animals at a fair rate, they would sell them at inflated prices. It's kind of like um, going to a tourist town or, and buying a t-shirt or buying a hot dog at a baseball game. Right? It, it's, a, it's a highly inflated price because it's the only place in town. Once again, gaining good profit margin. Remember, these were requirements of the devout Jews in the current paradigm of the religious organization. Those who were coming to the temple and to pray and to seek forgiveness from their sins had to go through this process. So Jesus' first boiling point this morning is misusing the temple. When Jesus saw the way that the temple was being used, Jesus got so angry that he was pushed into action. Jesus reached his boiling point when people used the temple to fill their own pockets with profit. When individual greed took priority over service to the people who came to worship God, when greed became the priority, Jesus got angry. He got so angry, in fact, that he was moved to action. But this begs the question, what's the appropriate use of the temple? And I would ask, ask, what's the appropriate use of the church? And here's the thing. Ask 10 different people what the appropriate use of the church is, and you're going to get 10 different answers, right? Because there are a lot of different things that we believe this space is meant for. But Jesus put it very simply. Jesus lays out some very simple and specific and straightforward things that the temple was used for in this time. In Luke 21, the author states, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach and each evening he returned to the night, at night to the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered in the temple early each morning to hear him. A second boiling point today that we're going to get into is this all about me concept. You see, Jesus regularly went to the temple to teach, and people regularly went to the temple and the synagogues to, to listen and to learn and to encounter God. But when worship and gathering in God's house became less about God and more about me and mine, Jesus got angry. When we become greedy and selfish with our desires in life, when worship and relationship with God become all about us, Jesus gets angry too. I want you to think about this for a moment because this is a profound issue that still affects our current Christian culture today. The issue of greed and self-centeredness involves our spiritual lives as much as it does our worship spaces. If your experience of faith becomes all about you, it's not that much different than the all about me temple crowd. When your prayer life sounds more like a Christmas shopping list, or your giving comes with the expectation of receiving, you may be on the cusp of an all-about-me faith. You see, greed is like an infection in our lives. The want of more and the impulse and desire of our heart for earthly gain compounds in our lives. While it's a simple and, and somewhat comical illustration, my collection of literally hundreds upon hundreds of science fiction novels started with getting a couple of them at a thrift store. You see, greed and the desire for more often blinds us of the contentment that we should already have. We think that buying one more thing, one more thing, will bring the joy in life that we desire, but that one more thing only brings the desire, more desire, because possessions never fill the hole in our lives. Consider these loving words of warning from Christ himself, from Matthew 6. 
Don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, hear this, there the desire of your heart will be also. The desire of your heart will be also. The next boiling point this morning is a hyper-focus on earthly things. Another thing many of you may not know about me is that um, when I was younger, my parents were traveling folk musicians in the summer months. One of the songs that my parents wrote and performed was, was called Pack Rat. My mom wrote the lyrics of this song about my late grandfather, my father, and my brothers. There was a verse for each of us. Uh, a man who, as a man who lived through the Great Depression, my grandfather didn't get rid of anything. Um, and so the chorus and refrain of the song of Pack Rat goes like this. He's a pack rat. He saves everything. Yes, a pack rat. He might need it someday. Yes, a pack rat. So he can never say, I had what I needed, but I threw it away. Um, but that's, that's the chorus to, to Pack Rat. But when my grandfather... When my grandfather passed away, my parents assumed the responsibility of preparing the family farm for sale. After months, months of cleaning and sorting and organizing and sales and trips to the dump, the property sold with the outbuildings still filled with pieces and parts and equipment. When I think about Jesus' warning of, of storing up treasures on earth. I think about the family farm in Wacusta. I loved that farm. I really did. I, I loved visiting and seeing my family there. I loved watching my grandpa tinker in the shop, working on projects, exploring the blacksmith barn, the hangar, the welding shop. But today, as I reflect on the old family farm, I don't really think about those joys that I found there. Instead, I have this image of stacked steel rusting in a pile, old airplane parts sitting on the shelf, never to be used. My parents, dirty, sweaty, exhausted, trying to find homes for all of Grandpa's treasures. Now, don't hear me wrong. I love my family. I love my family. I love the, the, all of the devotion and all of the things that they have done for the local community. But Grandpa didn't take any of his treasures with him. I know that many of you here today have had to deal with similar situations in your families. I understand the heartache and I understand the frustration. However, whether it's greed or an obsessive-compulsive response to circumstances in life, the Great Depression, or family upbringing, Jesus teaches us that a focus on accumulation of earthly things is a vain pursuit. Greed and the quest for more at the expense of God and God's people in our relationship with God took Jesus to his boiling point. Knowing this, we would do well to consider our own lives, our own possessions, and the desires of our own heart. My intention today is not to make you feel guilty, um, is not for the greed that may or may not infect your life. 
My purpose today is to give you a perspective of how, great, how greed can poison your life. But what is, an enlightened, um, what is an enlightenment to a heart issue without a practical application or remedy? Well, that's a very depressing teaching, right? And so we're going to take a few minutes to work through how we can move out of a greed infection and prevent future infections of greed in our lives. Now, I use the term infection intentionally because I believe that infection is the appropriate illustration for what greed is and how it operates in our bodies. Uh, MedicineNet.com defines an infection as the invasion and multiplication of microorganisms such as bacteria, viruses, and parasites that are not normally present within the body. An infection may cause no symptoms and be subclinical, or it may cause symptoms and be clinically apparent. An infection may remain localized, or it may spread to become systemic. Greed acts like an infection in our bodies. For some of us, it remains subclinical, and it has no noticeable symptoms. Sometimes, however, greed becomes systemic and infects our whole body, and it affects us to our core. But the good news is that there is a cure for most medical infections, and equally so, there is a cure for greed. Just as antibiotics can, can kill and heal a body suffering from a bacterial infection, so too can God work in our hearts and minds and heal the greed that infects our lives. Now, the antibiotic that I offer you today does not come from me, but of course comes from God. So, of course, I'm going to say, dive into God's word, listen to Jesus' teachings, and let the Holy Spirit heal your heart. That's the vaccine. Now, intentionally taking an antibiotic to a cure, to cure an infection is a different conversation, though, than the preventative practices that we need to make to prevent future infections. And so we're going to go through some basic first aid strategies this morning that, for preventing greed infections in our lives. So the first thing we have to do is we have to see the wound. We have to realize that we have a wound. Um, we have to recognize it because we are open to sin in our lives. Greed has an access point, an entry point into our lives because, because of our compulsion to sin and the allure of materialism, we must be vigilant in our prevention strategies to protect ourselves becoming, from becoming infected by greed. To begin to prevent the infection of greed in our lives, we must realize that we are susceptible to the infection. The skin has been broken. We have an open wound. First, we have to see the wound. The second thing we have to do is we have to cleanse the wound. When you have an open wound, medically, one of the things that you often have to do is you have to clean the wound, and it is a painful process. The greatest image of pain that I have for my personal life of this is when my, my son had third-degree burns in his hands, and we had to debreed the wounds of his hands every day at the hospital. It hurt him immensely, but it was necessary for him to heal. There is nothing about cleaning a wound that is pleasant, but it is an essential part of the process. In our spiritual lives, we too must clean the wound that sin leaves in our lives. And this means different things to different people. But what is universal between all of us is that cleaning out the wound is painful. 
It is something that we have to endure. It is not a pleasant process, but it is an essential part of our ability to prevent future infections. So we have to clean the wound, and it may mean something different for each of us. For some of us, it may, be, it may mean cutting up your credit cards, or it may mean taking a sabbatical from social media. It may mean saying no to yourself or choosing to go without. It may mean breaking off an unhealthy relationship or abstinence in some way, but we each have an open wound. To prevent future infections, we must must go through the necessary pain to cleanse the wound. The third thing we do is we have to wrap the wound. To prevent future infections in our body, we must protect our cleansed wound from the elements of the world, thereby preventing bacteria from re-entering the body. Today, I recommend that you wrap your spiritual wound with ongoing engagement with God. Devote time to God. Encounter God weekly in worship. Engage with God daily through the study of his word. Engage with God daily through communion with him in prayer. Dedicate yourself to a life group, a small group, a community group where you can live out your faith together in community with peers of your faith. We wrap our spiritual wound and protect ourselves from future infections by growing in our faith and and engaging with God and following the spiritual growth plan. And if you want to know what that's all about, go on to the website and you can read about the spiritual growth plan. See the wound, cleanse your your wound, and wrap the wound. And the fourth and final thing that we have to do that we often forget, I won't say always, we often forget this. The last thing we have to do is change the dressing. We, We... must recognize that until we are fully healed, we have to replace and change the dressings in our life. If you've been doing the same spiritual practice, the same spiritual discipline for a long time, and I would call a long time a few years, then it's time to change the dressing. Try studying scripture differently. Learn a new prayer practice. Engage in worship more profoundly. Keep moving on to perfection. See the wound, clean it, and wrap it, but make sure that you remember to change the dressing because the first dressing on an open wound is never the last. What would it look like if greed no longer infected our community? What would we begin to look like as a town and a township and a county if greed no longer infected our interactions with each other and with other people? What if money, possessions, materialism, and reaching for one more almighty dollar was replaced with a genuine desire to serve God and love other people? What if a desire for simplicity trumped our desire for more possessions in life? You know, I dream of that day, but I not only dream of that day, I I believe that it is completely and wholly possible to obtain in our world, and I know people that live that way. You see, greed took Jesus to his boiling point, but Jesus also offered us the healing vaccine needed to eliminate that greed from our lives. So the questions that I pose to you this morning, knowing that we are all wounded by sin and we are all susceptible to greed, how deeply Are you wounded? 
And secondly, are you willing to seek the cure that's found in Christ? Let's pray together, shall we? God of love and grace, we are all broken. We are all prone to be infected by greed in our lives. Sometimes, sometimes, Lord, we fail to place you first. Sometimes the lights and shines of newer and better draw us in and blind us from your calling. Lord, help us to keep you at our core and not our own ambition nor our earthly desires and never our quest for worldly gain. Christ, be our center. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we all pray today and everyone said, amen.